Welcome to The, the Get, Get Together. Together. It's a show about the nuts and bolts of community building, and I am your host, Bailey Richardson, a community researcher at People & Company. I'm Kevin Huynh, another partner at People & Company, resident shave ice aficionado. Let's be also specific. Also an expert in the nuts and bolts and cornflakes of community building. <laughs> when Kevin says he's a shaved ice aficionado, what he really means is ice kachang. And if no, you know the shave that... ice, the shave ice desserts of the world. Oh, okay. You know what I'm saying? You gotta start that fan club. Hala hala, ice kachang, mm. kakigori, bingsu. Keep going. I want to see how, how many of these have you had. For? Hawaiian shave ice. <laughs> that, that crappy shave ice you get at carnivals. Yeah, no, I haven't had that. Just like the straight up like color syrup. Oh, You're at yes, the, the I Gilroy have. Garlic Festival. I'm hot. I might as well get a shave ice. <laughs> Gilroy Garlic Festival. Yeah. These are all experiences I've had. Okay. All right, yeah. continue. Okay, we're moving forward. The episode. <laughs> uh, in each of our episodes, Kevin and I get to talk to people who have built communities about just how they did it. So, you know, how did you get the first people to show up? How did you grow that to thousands more people? Today, we had the best conversation with a man named Dan Madsen. And Dan is the secret sauce behind the very first Star Wars celebration. In 1999, two weeks before The Phantom Menace, the first Star Wars movie to be made in 20 years, plus or minus, Dan was asked to host 20,000 people in Denver, Colorado for Star Wars Celebration One, a huge fan fest, the first of its kind. In this interview, we asked Dan not only about that event, and how he did it, how he pulled it off, but about launching a fanzine for Star Wars at 15 that would become the officially licensed Star Wars Insider magazine and also being asked after George Lucas personally noticed his work to start the official Star Wars fan club. So kind of a dreamy life experience Dan has had given he was such a big Star Wars fan. Yeah, Kevin, you're a Denver native like Dan. Colorado native. I really felt like you were Colorado native. Fair enough. I, I really feel lot. like you were uh, feeling emotionally moved by Dan. Can, can... I was teary, man, in the interview. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he didn't see that over the phone, but I was straight teary. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Tell me. Um, listening to his story, and it's just I could just imagine what it might feel like to. He describes being inspired by Star Trek, and then like seeing the first Star Wars movie, and then all of these like sort of graduating crazy moments of you know being uh, flown out to the skywalker ranch to potentially do this and him sort of being uh naive and bright-eyed be like sure i can do that like sure i can launch a magazine sure i can run the fan club sure all this and then you know to eventually hosting the first celebration and, and organizing just his community and how much passion he has for it and how he really built an impressive business as well. It just Yeah, super impressive yeah, business. That was a surprise yeah, for me. It's I, amazing. Yeah. I, I guess to me, like, I, I want to optimize for, like, a really interesting, heartfelt career. That's kind of, like, what I'm in it for. You know, I want enough money to be comfortable, but I also want to have a lot of a lot of moments that move me and moments that make me feel surprised and scared and like I'm putting myself in the line and things happening. And as he describes his career, um, his work with Star Wars, it just sounds like a, truly an adventure. Mm-hmm. And um, I love just how he speaks about it now, sort of looking back. It, it was inspiring to listen to and so fun to sort of go along the journey with him. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an incredible life he's lived, one in certainly, you know, a million. And I think the only thing I'll add before we jump into the interview is we tell organizations all the time that if you're going to give a community member a tall task, if you're going to ask someone, a big fan, a big supporter to do more for you, they really need to be two things, genuine and qualified. You know, if you're going to put a lot on their shoulders, if they're going to stand up on a podium and represent you, those are what you need them to be. And I loved how the people at Lucasfilm said to Dan, you know, you're the perfect blend of professionalism and fanaticism. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought that was such a a great description. And, And so you'll hear more about that in the interview. But let's get to it. One of the things, Dan, that we have seen across the board with any community leader that we've talked to is that they really have to give a damn if they expect other people to. They have to love the thing that they're supporting and stewarding in the world. So can you tell us when and why you first fell in love with Star Wars? Can you take us back to that first experience and what it captured in you? I was a 14-year-old kid. I'd come home from school every day and I'd watch the reruns of Star Trek. Just so everyone knows, I'm a little person. I'm four foot, two inches tall. And so life was a bit tough for me when I was growing up. I got people would, you know, make fun of me and bully me and such. And so uh, I came home one day from school and uh, the very first episode I ever sat down and watched of Star Trek was an episode called Plato's Stepchildren, which had Kirk, Spock, and McCoy traveling to a planet where they met a group of people. And there was a little person uh, who looked very much like me in this episode. And it struck me as amazing that for the first time I saw somebody on TV that looked like me. And uh, he sat there and he asked Captain Kirk, he says, what's it like where you come from? And Captain Kirk looked at him and he said, Alexander, he says, where I come from, size, shape, or color makes no difference. And I was thinking, wow, what an amazing world that must be, Mm. Uh, you know, where I wouldn't be judged by what's on the outside, but what's on the inside. So as it happens, um, at the end of the episode, Alexander gets to beam up to the Enterprise with the Starfleet crew and uh, gets to go off on adventures with them. So it was about a year later, I heard a Star Trek convention was coming to Denver, Colorado, which is where I'm based. And I went to this convention and I got the program book. And on the back of this program book was an ad for a new movie I'd never heard before called Star Wars. How old and were you at the very, time? Remind me. How I, let's see, I would have been probably 14 or 15. Wow. I got my plans to go see this movie because I thought this sounds really interesting. My was cousin it, went to it see it. was a star, another sort of... Uh, it was another, another star, another, yeah. It was like, yeah. It, it sounded like uh, another sci-fi movie and that was my passion. So I was thinking, wow, this could be pretty cool. And it was opening at the big giant screen theater. And just like any other 14-year-old kid and anybody, actually, my jaw dropped at that opening scene with the Star Destroyer coming over. Mm. And I was just enamored. I couldn't believe it. It was such an amazing moment in my life. And uh, I decided I had to become a Star Wars fan as well as a Star Trek fan. I went and I bought all kinds of Star Wars memorabilia. And I bought the model kits and hung them from my ceiling in my bedroom. And um, I joined the very first official Star Wars fan club. I was one of the very first people to ever join. How did you do Um, that at the time? How how did you find the information and become a member? Yeah, how did that happen? There was an ad in uh, one of the sci-fi magazines, a Starlog magazine, which was a 
uh, kind of a pop culture sci-fi magazine that you could buy in any of the newsstands and such. And I saw an ad for the official Star Wars fan club. So I joined it and got this really cool membership kit. And then I think quarterly you'd get a, a newsletter called Bantha Tracks, which would have some information and interviews and things. You started a, a fanzine yourself, right? Is that perhaps where you're going next? Can you tell me about the idea to start your own and tell me about the first issue? What was in it? That's exactly what the next step was. I had decided in 1979, the new Star Trek movie had opened, um, Star Trek, the motion picture, and I decided to start a fan club for Star Trek. So I sat down in front of a typewriter and I typed out all of my newsletter stuff. And I advertised as well in that Starlog magazine. I think initially I had 15 fan club members that joined and it was called Star Trek, the motion picture fan club. So I started my fan club and um, got a job in a print shop and started making it look better and more professional. And after about several years, newsletter got in the hands of somebody at Paramount Pictures Licensing. And they called me up and they said, hey, are you aware you don't have a license to do this? And I said, well, I'm just a fan. I'm just doing this because I love it. And they said, well, let's fly you out here and let's have a talk with you about maybe starting the first official Star Trek fan club. Mm-hmm. So I, they literally wow. flew me out to the studio. Um, I got to visit the Star Trek sets. And they looked at me and they said, you have the right amount of professionalism mixed with the right amount of fanaticism. <laughs> and I think you should be the one to, to do the fan club. Then three months later, I get this huge giant contract in the mail. And uh, I signed it. Went on to become the official Star Trek fan club, ran that for years, doing my own thing with Star Trek officially, getting to know all of the cast and crew of the Star Trek films and TV series. It was in about 1986 that I get a call out of the blue. I'd been doing the Star Trek official fan club for some time and had put out the Star Trek uh, communicator magazine. It it was quite a slick color professional um, magazine. And that's when I got a call from the head of licensing at Lucasfilm, Howard Rothman. And he said, you know, we've decided to close down the fan club internally here. But he said, we've seen what you've been doing with Star Trek. And he says, George Lucas saw it. And we thought, Hmm. we wondered if you might be interested in taking over running the Star Wars fan club. Can I just pause you one sec, Dan? How wild were you like I would have been hitting my head you know I I just would have been going absolutely nuts if I knew George Lucas had seen what I was up to were you pinching yourself or was this just this is what your life sort of had been for a very long time yeah no I was pinching myself I was in I couldn't believe Star Wars was still this magical thing from my youth that I never imagined I would ever become involved with so to get the opportunity to fly out to Skywalker Ranch and meet George Lucas and sit down with Howard Rothman and talk about taking over the Star Wars fan club was mind boggling to me. And when I got out there, you know, at that point, this was way before the first prequel. And there was no idea when George would ever get back to making Star Wars movies. Nobody knew if he would for sure. And so when I went out to talk with them, they said, you know, we still have a mailing list of all the people who were in the Star Wars fan club. So we'll let you make out a mailer and send it to all of them. And then I made some very slick ads that went on the back cover of the Starlog magazine that said, you know, hey, the fan club is returned. But we were changing it because we didn't know when Star Wars was coming back. So we decided to call it the Lucasfilm fan club Mm. because the big project on their hands at that time was a movie called Willow. 
that was what they really wanted me to kind of focus on. If we kept it Lucasfilm, we could not only cover Star Wars, but we could do Willow. Mm -hmm. There was a new Indiana Jones movie coming down the pike. Um, and so we could cover everything that Lucasfilm was doing. One thing for me for people that aren't as familiar about fan clubs, including me, what was it that, you know, maybe Howard and George Lucas said really excited them about having a fan club? What is the argument you think for them? Obviously for you, it's in some ways connecting with other people who share a passion. What would you say it was for them? What did it seem like for them in those meetings you had? No question about it, it was building a community of passionate fans. Building that community so that they could market to those people, they could supply them with information, help them build their love of Star Wars, keep them in communication with one another, allow them to purchase things that would encourage their love of franchise. Yeah. And that became a big part of my business. That wasn't really a big part of the fan club initially, but as I built it in my own way, that became a big part of it. So we launched the Lucasfilm Fan Club. That very first issue, Bailey, that you were asking about, I was able to get a hold of uh, Anthony Daniels, who played C-3PO yeah. in all the Star Wars films. Yeah. Um, and he was my very first interview. We did a very long interview over the phone. He was in England. We launched the fan club at what was the very first official Star Wars convention ever. It was the 10th anniversary Star Wars convention. It was held in Los Angeles. We had a big, long table right in the lobby where we could sign up people saying, and they would come and mm -hmm. say, I thought the fan club closed down. We said, nope, we're relaunching it. It's now the mm -hmm. Lucasfilm fan club. And some of the cast members were there at the convention. So what was um, a convention was a, compared to a, the celebrations? What, what was the convention? Oh, much different. It was much on a much smaller scale. Okay. Um, it was nothing like the celebrations. It was more like a Star Trek convention for Star Wars fans didn't have nearly as many people. It was the early beginnings of what the celebration might be, but that was in 1987. Lucasfilm wasn't sure they really wanted to do conventions, but since it was the 10th anniversary of Star Wars, they decided to go ahead. Besides the fact that it was also the opportunity to launch this new fan club that they wanted to do as well. You know, so this is 1987 and you're at a convention, you have started this fan club, you're probably growing and growing members reasonably consistently. But yep. I believe that in 1999, that sort of new version of Star Wars, the, the one that I was born into seeing, was slated to come out. So you kind of have like a whole 10 year gap. And then when do you start hearing that a new film is going to come out, a new Star Wars film is gonna come out? Well, we started hearing early rumblings about new prequels. Um, not every issue, but every few issues. I'd try to do um, an interview with George Lucas, and I'd always ask him every time, when are you gonna get back to Star Wars? And of course he'd say, well, I plan on it someday, don't know when, you know, and every time he'd be like, oh man, you know, I, I was hoping this time he'd say next year, you know, and mm -hmm. at any rate, so it was about, I would say 90, Seven ninety six when I first started hearing the rumblings that there was actually Star Wars movies possibly going to be made and they would be prequels taking place prior to the films we'd already seen. That was about the time that I flew out to Skywalker Ranch and we had a big meeting in the uh, meeting room there with Tiffany lamps and everything around us. And we had a big meeting about restructuring the fan club now at this point because it was Star Wars was now the big thing on the plate, and we should rename the fan club back to the official Star Wars fan club. 
And so we started designing logos and I came up with the name for the fan club. Instead of just calling it a fan club magazine, we kind of decided to call it the Star Wars Insider mm. magazine. And um, because that's what it was, it was an inside look at everything Star Wars. At that point, I was introduced to Rick McCallum, who was coming on board as the producer of the films that would be working literally as George Lucas's right-hand man. Uh, and he would do updates with me in every issue. And prior to that, I had already been doing in the middle of each fan club magazine, a catalog called the Jawa Trader, um, which had every piece of licensed merchandise that Lucasfilm had for Star wow. Wars. And other things. We also sold Willow stuff and Indiana Jones stuff. Um, and that would go out to all of our subscribers, and they would have the opportunity to purchase that. Wow. I had a 4,000-square-foot warehouse towards the very end of all of this where it looked like the warehouse from the end of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, just aisle upon aisle upon aisle of massive Man. things of Star Wars action figures and masks and toys and blankets and wow you had a you full enterprise it. going on so you not only had subscribers and fan club members but you were able to generate revenue for the fan club through sales of actual collectibles. oh absolutely yeah in fact at the peak of my business running the star wars official fan club i had three huge warehouses i had a little over a hundred employees wow. and we were doing about 20 million a year um, oh my in, God, Dan, uh, that's in business. And we, we did the very first uh, official Star Wars merchandise website. We developed the StarWarsShop.com that was connected to StarWars.com in the very beginning. Um, and we had the catalog and the magazine. The magazine started going on to newsstand distribution and went to grocery stores and Barnes and Nobles. I think, <laughs> wow. you know, we were doing about a half million magazines at its peak. would go out between subscribers and um, newsstand together. Um, and we had the largest membership numbers ever in the Star Wars fan club's existence. At our peak, we had 180,000 wow. uh, members in the Star wow. Wars official What fan year club. was that in? Would you that say? would have been about 98, wow. 99. Right Man, there, right. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, at the time, we were really Star Wars Central. We managed just about all of these major arms of the Star Wars world uh, at one point in time. What's the relationship between official Star Wars headquarters and then the fan club and your business? Because we talk to some fan clubs, which are, uh, you know, entirely independent from, you know, right. the quote unquote front office and others, which are very much sponsored or sort of run by, you know, full-time employees at headquarters. So what, what was, you know, where did Star Wars and the fan club fall on that spectrum? We were officially licensed by Lucasfilm, which meant we had a contract that we signed. Mm -hmm. Usually they would run about five years at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, we paid a royalty to them on everything we did. And in return for that, they would advertise us on all of their Star Wars product. If you look back at that time period, if you looked at one of Hasbro's action figures, you'd see if you turned it over the package on the very back at the bottom, it'd say, join the official Star Wars fan club call 1-800-TRUE-FAN. When you'd call that number, it would come to our um, call center here in Denver, wow. where I had probably 25 um, phone operators that were sitting there all day taking orders that wow. would then get put into our system, that would then get printed out, that would then get shipped out to the warehouse, and the warehouse would pack and ship them out. Um, so Killer we, phone number. Yeah. yeah. I was say, killer phone number. 
<laughs> yeah, one eight hundred. Well, you know, the reason we didn't do one eight hundred Star Wars or something was because that number also worked for our Star Trek fan club, and uh, oh, it was growing and huge at the time. So people would call in, and when you'd get the the call in, it'd say. If you're calling for the official Star Wars fan club, please press one. Wow. If you're calling for the official Star Trek fan club, please press two. And then you'd go and it'd take you to an operator that's handling wow. Star Wars or one that's doing Star Trek. So when we first started this interview, you said you were 14 or 15 when right. your first kind of wading into the waters of fan clubs more seriously yep. happens. And you were very young when you started these zines, turning them into magazines. And then you're at this point where you have three warehouses, you have 25 people just answering the phone, hundreds of employees. Yep. Like, how did you teach yourself to become so professionalized? Did you have mentors along the way? Did you just feel as though Lucasfilms and the Star Trek team was really generous with you and, and you know, being transparent with you? But it seems like you stepped into really big deals and big business as something that you just started when you were very young. I really learned by doing. I mean, I was self-taught in just about everything I did. Mm -hmm. However, you know, I hired qualified people that could tell me, here's how you do this. And yeah. here's what we need to do, you know, in negotiations with Lucasfilm and Paramount to get the best royalty payments yeah. that we can do and yep. that sort of thing. You know, somebody to handle finance and accounting. And I had a warehouse director and I did a lot of freelance writers I would hire to do writing for the magazine. I did, in the beginning, I did almost all the writing interviews layout for the fan club magazines. It was almost exclusively me. And then I, it just got to be too much work to handle the, running the business and doing that. So I was able to hire an editor for both of the magazines, you know, get a lot of writers, hire an outside designer to design the magazines. And, yeah. um, but they, Lucasfilm and, and Paramount were both very patient with me and they saw the quality of what I was doing and the passion. And, you know, that's the key thing for me is because when you're doing something you love, you know, every day was like going to Disneyland to work for me. I mean, it was, it, there was nothing hard about it at all. I mean, did I have struggles? Absolutely. You know, some months we didn't have as good as sales and, you know, you still had bills to pay and other months things went crazy. But as we moved up towards that first prequel, episode one, The Phantom Menace, the excitement and enthusiasm for Star Wars was so, you just felt it everywhere. Everybody was, because everybody had been waiting yeah. for George to get back to making new Star Wars movies. And many of us thought he'd never do it. Yeah. So tell me about, you know, there's this fervor. I'm sure at the time I was young, but I'm sure there was McDonald's cups with Darth Vader's face on it. I'm sure the whole country, oh, yeah. the whole world was ready for this. And you're at the center of this fan club. Will you tell us how the idea for you to host what would become the first celebration came in front of you? Uh, Absolutely. Tell us that That, that was... I didn't have a lot of time to put it together. And, and just as a note, I'd never done an event before in my life. Uh, I, I wasn't a producer of any event. Um, I did the whole business operations sides of things and writing and editing and such, but never ran an event. At any rate, I would why, say why a little- Why did Star Wars ask you to do it? Why did Lucasfilm ask you to do the event, do you think? Uh, that's a very good question. I actually got a call from them a little less than a year and a half before the date of the actual event. And they said, listen, we want to do a big Star Wars event 
to kind of kick off these new prequels and give the fans the opportunity to celebrate Star Wars. And we really want the fan club to be the ones to do it. To do it. We think that it would be better if it came from the fan club than from us. You know, we'd have more heart if it was looked like the fans were doing it than us. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I agree. And I said, you know, we'd actually discuss doing something like that. And they said, well, let's fly out here to Skywalker Ranch. Let's sit down. We had two days of meetings of what they wanted to do, how they wanted to do it. I offered my thoughts and my group. I had, you know, my three or four key people in my company came out with me and we all expressed our desires, what we wanted to do. Yeah. How did Um, you structure those meetings? Like, were there key topics that you knew you had to cover? Like how to get the word out? What was actually going to happen at the events? What the surprises were going to be? How do you approach planning something like that? It was overwhelming at first because, yes, we had to talk about where is it going to be held? What city in the country? Is there an event location in one of these cities? We looked at Orlando. We looked at Los Angeles. We looked at Chicago. And then, you know, who's who would be the guests that would come? What kind of events would we have there? What's the whole scope of the thing? And it was months and months and months of meeting after meeting after meeting. It really came down to my company and the people within my company developed and designed that whole first celebration. We'd go to Lucasfilm and say, here's what we want to do. They'd add their two cents worth in. Well, we can do this. You know, that might be kind of difficult. And at the end of the day, I really suggested, I said, you know, Denver, Colorado is where I want to have it. I said, number one, it's in the center of the country. I said, but most importantly, it's the headquarters of the official Star Wars fan club. I said, my whole company is there. I said, I've got 100 employees who I can have move over and help work on putting this event together. I said, you know, if I have to do this in LA, I have to do it in Chicago. I'm going to have to be traveling. I don't have all the the contacts and people in those cities like I have right here. I don't have my volunteer base that I have here. And at the end of the day, I convinced them that to do the first event here in Denver. And then we had the problem of trying to find a location. The convention center, unfortunately, had been booked. You know, we didn't have several years to try to coordinate this thing. So we had to find a location that was still open. So I had to go get really creative. And we went to a place here called the Wings of the Rockies Air and Space Museum, huge giant hangar with aircraft from all different centuries, uh, World War II and jet fighter planes. And um, they were starting to open it up to hold big events in there. They had some of the NASA stuff was in this facility. And so the head of marketing flew out and I showed him the facility and he really liked the idea of, of mirroring, you know, Star Wars, the feature fantastical with real life, you know, mm-hmm. space flight and such and planes and things. And so <clears throat> I got them to sign off on the location. I still don't know how I did it. And I don't know how my <laughs> company did it because while we were putting on this massive event that was being marketed to people all over the world through amazing different venues, we still had to put the magazine out. We still had to run the fan club. We still had to process all the merchandise, um, run the website store. And it was an enormous, costly task to put this event on. I hired a local company who puts on a major event here in Denver called Starfest, which was our big local science fiction convention because they had an amazing base of volunteers. I hired them to come on and help me and they would bring in all the volunteers. On the business side, a lot of times we come from businessy backgrounds and 
often try to have a North Star or a metric or a vision that we're trying to build towards with our work. Thinking about how Lucasfilm wanted this to be as much energy in these diehard fans as possible when they go back home to watch the film. Did you think about that in designing the event too? Was that the goal for you and how you thought about putting it together? How did you approach deciding what to include and what not to include? That's a very good question because that's exactly what I did. I mean, really, this event was focused more on that movie. We didn't go back in to all of the history and past of Star Wars. All of the decor, all of the big banners we produced had the characters and such from episode one because this was the new, exciting Star Wars that was coming down the pike that everybody hadn't seen yet. Everything from a marketing perspective was done from gearing us towards pointing right straight towards episode one. All of the guests at the convention were basically all of the actors and producers from Star Wars episode one. The only one who was there, I believe, I'm thinking right now, was Anthony Daniels, who was the master of ceremonies. And he's just an amazing host. Um, He came out and stayed two weeks prior to the event and worked with me to help design the entire stage event and show. Yeah, I remember reading a a blog post you put up and saying how special he was to the event. And I'm wondering, it sounds like he was part of the special sauce. Anthony Daniels being there on stage and being that kind of host presence. What were one or two other things that were special sauce? I've heard rumors of a life-size X-wing plane being flown out for this thing. Like what what else did you kind of surprise people? What show? (laughs) Well, the the life-size X-wing was it without question. It, it was flown out from Lucasfilm. Flown out. It was in a bunch of... Actually, it wasn't flown out. I I guess I shouldn't say it like that. It actually was trucked out. It wasn't flown. It was was on on a giant semi-truck. It had been pulled apart in pieces. One of our warehouses housed it for about a month prior to the event, so (laughs) our employees were getting a big kick of going into the warehouse and standing around a life-size X-wing fighter. Um, And then taking it on a big giant flatbed truck down to the event. You should have seen the eyes and the, the people pointing as we drive down the street to get it, it was down just there. Fully assembled and yes. open air. Almost for people. It wasn't quite, but it was. It was assembled enough that you could tell what it was. Just coming down um, I twenty five. Coming down I twenty five. That's exactly right. Yes. So we got it. We got it down there and set up, and that was a huge surprise because people got to go stand next to it and have their pictures taken with it. Um, and then the, the other thing I will mention to you, you asked what other yeah. special things. We did a props and costumes display where we had to have it all insured. We had to have 24-hour security. And Lucasfilm wow. had it shipped out in a armored truck. And wow. we had, you know, like the original Darth Vader costume. We had some of the original miniatures that were used like the original miniature in um, Millennium Falcon. We had wow. some of the original props that were used in episode one that people hadn't even seen yet. So we had an entire museum there with display cases that had these things that were worth millions of dollars that fans could come into the museum mm-hmm. and see some of the costumes and props, uh, original lightsabers, things that no one had ever had the opportunity to see before. So cool, Dan. 
Dan, you got 20,000 people to come to this first celebration. This is yep. the internet's in the world, but it's nowhere near the same thing that it is today to just flash a no. marketing message to people. How did that surprise you? And how did you get so many people to come? What, what was the trick? Well, a couple of things. Well, number one was word of mouth from Star Wars fans. You could feel the buzz of the excitement around the fact that Star Wars was coming back. So we advertised about six months in advance. We put out the Star Wars Insider, and it was a bi-monthly magazine. And in every issue, we did two huge full-page ads talking about the celebration, who was coming, <clears throat> did articles in the magazine about what was going to be seen there. Um, we advertised in some other magazines. We sent out a mailer to everybody on the mailing list. We did some news stories with some of the national media and local media. And that's the thing that was amazing to me because when the event actually happened, we had media from all over the world. I mean, we had Lucasfilm's PR director had to handle a lot of the international press. And we had press from Japan and Australia and England and Germany and, you know, there to cover this event. Yeah, because I wanted this to was know, it, you know. Did did people come from all around the world? Where did some of these people come from? You had a small town, you had a village worth, I mean, a big medium-sized town worth of yep. people there. Where did folks come from? What did you, what surprised you? Literally all over the world. All, all those countries I just told you, we had fans from every one of those all over the world. It, it was and truly amazing to me how many people were um, were coming from countries from around the world. We even had some that had come from the Soviet Union. We had some that had come from Czechoslovakia, Germany, Australia. Some of those fans I met and have remained dear friends to me to this very day. Well, we spoke to a, a man named Brennan Swain, who mm -hmm. he actually won the Amazing Race and was at the very first celebration, and I believe the second one, He's a very passionate collector of collectibles, so I'm sure you've crossed paths. But he told us that one I, of the sure. things, yeah, one of the things he was most excited about was he had been communicating online and in forums and these different places with other big Star Wars collectibles people, you know, other big personalities. And I'm I'm wondering how much of that was the reason that people decided to come was to meet other fans that they had already met or yeah, was that, was that the poll or was it something else? That was a massive poll because you have to remember Star Wars hadn't had an official convention since 1987. Unlike Star Trek, which had conventions every year all over the country at that time, Star Wars didn't have that. Um, and there was this kind of dead time or downtime, I should say, when there wasn't anything new for Star Wars, you know, from the time Return of the Jedi had come out and ended till the time that episode one came out. And that was my time period. That was a time period that I had to keep Star Wars in front of people, I had to keep it alive and vibrant, mm -hmm. keep their excitement and such up. And so the idea that not only were they going to get to go sit in a darkened movie theater and get to watch another Star Wars movie on the big screen, but there was going to be an official Star Wars convention with all the trappings that you could possibly want from an event like that. Get to meet the new cast members, get to see some of the very first footage um, from the new movie, get to get autographs, get to buy collectibles. For Star Wars, collecting is, is a massive part of Star Wars fandom. Um, and action figures are like the gold standard of Star Wars collecting. And we had Hasbro working with us 
and the very first place you could buy any of the new Star Wars action figures from episode one, even before Toys R Us, when they opened at midnight hmm. so you could stand in line, was at our convention. And we hmm. had an entire store set up, line going all the way out the building from that uh, the building was in. And um, people can come in there and buy the very first action figures from episode one. That was a huge draw because this was the very first place to get these collectibles. Yeah. And we also did exclusives that you couldn't find anywhere else so that, you know, you had to come to the convention, you had to buy the stuff there. And as a result, you know, some of that stuff has become extremely valuable because there was one place and one place only to get it. And that was at Celebration One. Well, the fan club is no longer. I sold the fan club in about 2001 to Wizards of the Coast, a company up in Seattle, Washington, who did the Pokemon trading card game and such. Wow. They ran it for a couple of years, didn't have great success with it. Eventually, I think Lucasfilm hired somebody else to do it and decided that it was time to close it down again. Do you know um, why they and, would decide to do that? Well, because they just didn't see the interest in people wanting to join a fan club. But what they did keep alive was the Star Wars Insider magazine. So the Star Wars Insider magazine has continued to this very day. And Titan Publishing, who is based out of England, they now publish the Star Wars Insider it's found in grocery stores and Barnes and Nobles and everywhere else. So the magazine is, is the lifeline still. It's the thing that goes out to the fans and such. But, you know, with the rise in the Internet, the fan club became kind of a dinosaur because you don't really need the fan club to keep people on, abreast of what's happening in the news because they go online and they find stuff out within, you know, minutes of mm. any news getting put out. It's on the Internet and there's so much out there that you can do with fan sites. So the fan club kind of became not as important as it was in my day when the internet was just starting, yeah. just it, beginning. Do you think anything is lost about the fan club going away and the internet offers immediacy? Uh, kind of 24, yeah, 24 seven, it's there yeah. and everything is there. Mm -hmm. But what, you know, what was there when in 1999 or in the 80s, uh, that's not there now? Yeah, I mean, the specialness, I hear it all the time from people who say, oh, I missed the fan club because it was so cool, you know, getting stuff in the mail and looking forward to it, the magazine coming all the time and, and getting uh, all the different merchandise and products that I could buy through the fan club. And, you know, now there's exclusives. Every store has got an exclusive. Walmart has exclusives and Hot Topic has exclusives. And, you know, it's like every retailer has a Star Wars exclusive now, you know, um, it's just not as homegrown as it was back in the day when we were doing it. Um, yeah. It's lost a bit of that special touch, I think. It doesn't feel as personal as it used to. What about the celebration? What is your relationship to that now? It's in its, I think, it's had many iterations, but I think it might be in its, you know better than me, 13th official iteration uh, coming up. Well, I, yeah, it's getting, it's huge. I mean, it, I mean, it's, they've grown to the point where it's now a massive convention company called Read Pop, who, um, who handles the conventions, whole different scale than anything I was doing. I mean, <clears throat> we were doing it by the seat of our pants, you know, these guys are set up, they run New York Comic Con, they're massive, they do um, massive conventions all over the world. Um, and they now do the celebrations. And I still have a great relationship with them. I talk to them as each event comes closer. I still talk with them. And I've been to almost, almost all of them other than maybe two. I think I've missed two. I couldn't make it to next year. That's being held in Chicago. 
um, is going to be a very special one because they're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the first celebration. So I'll be there with a lot of kinds of interesting, fun things to uh, talk about the beginnings of Star Wars celebration and some stories and thoughts about how it's come so far over 20 years. And, and you know, the one thing I didn't mention to you guys, <clears throat> there was a fly in the ointment of all of this. And that was the event was held here in Denver back in uh, 1999. Well, two weeks before the event happened, we had the tragedy here in Denver of the Columbine High School shooting, mm. where I don't remember how many kids had been shot and killed, 12, 13, 15, something like that. Mm. At any rate, this happened literally two weeks before the event. And I found out about it. I had gone to the hotel to pick up Anthony Daniels. And we, he and I were sitting in the restaurant. <clears throat> they had the TV on. We looked up at the TV, and there was a news story of the SWAT teams and police there at the school and what was happening and the horror of what was going on. And, then, you know, that swept the world. I mean, it was the first, really the first time these school shootings had started. The whole country was just jaw-dropped that this was happening, and it happened literally 20 minutes from where the celebration was being held. So the next day after this had all happened, I get a call from the head of Lucasfilm Licensing. And he says, I think we've talked with George and we think we should cancel the event. He said, you know, this is not a time of celebration. You know, be holding something in Denver there after something so horrific yeah. happened. And yeah. you guys like have the X-Wing out there and Anthony Daniels has been staying there for a couple of weeks and you've been exactly. doing all this work, this horrible thing happens. And then, well, and we had sold already, I think something like uh, 12,000 advanced tickets. People had already made their plans from all over the world. We had people sending us notes and letters saying they're coming from Germany. I mean, they'd made their vacation plans around this. Yeah. <clears throat> and Anthony and I sat there, we were on in my office on the speaker phone with Lucasfilm. And I said, I think that's the wrong choice. And I said, let me tell you why. If there was ever a time when this city needs to have something happy, have something to celebrate, to take us out of this dark mood that we're in at this point from all of this horribleness that's just happened, I said it would be this. We'd be allowing these two madmen who had created this horribleness there at the high school also ruin the lives of all of these other people. Anthony and I were literally on the phone with them for an hour and a half trying to convince them that that was the wrong decision to make. They said, let us talk over with George. We'll call you back tomorrow and let you know. In the meantime, I immediately got on the phone with the mayor of Denver's office. And I said, here's what's happening. We need you to write a letter to Lucasfilm and fax it over there immediately that says, you don't want this to be canceled, but Denver needs this shot in the arm now more than ever to have something special like this. The mayor of Denver sent a letter to Lucasfilm by fax saying, please don't cancel this event. And so the next day we got on the phone, Anthony and I, and I swear, I, he, I, they didn't say it, but I'm almost certain George was in the office sitting there with him. He didn't say he was there, but we talked and talked and talked. And at the end of the conversation, I could hear a pause as if they were looking over at somebody to see a nod. And we had convinced them to keep the event on. What we would do though, is have special ribbons made up that everybody who attended the event could have. It was the Columbine High School colors. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and we would raise money for the, the victims of a Columbine shooting. Um, and we raised, I believe it was somewhere in the amount of $35,000 wow. that would be donated to the victims of the Columbine shootings. And then when the event started, 
I came out on stage and asked for the whole audience to give a, a moment of silence for what had happened two weeks earlier here in Denver. And then the event went on and it then happened, but it came within a literally a breath of being canceled. Yeah. Wow. Dan, I, I want to ask you just maybe two more questions because we're close to sure. time here. Yeah. If, if I asked you to do the celebration all over again, or maybe all of this work that you've done, the magazine, the fan club, uh, the celebration, what's the one thing you would do differently? Is there anything? Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> if I could do it over differently, I wouldn't buy so many Jar Jar action figures. That's probably what I would do differently. I couldn't sell all of them. And I think they eventually went to a dump somewhere. Oh, um, man. I wouldn't mind no, a Jar Jar I mean, action figure. So oh, sorry. yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, you know I, to be honest, the path I took to do all of these things has led me to where I am today. And I don't regret any of them. And I think that one led to another and it were some of the things that didn't work perfectly were learning experiences the friends and the experiences that i made throughout running the fan clubs publishing the magazines and doing the the first star wars celebration event have lasted a lifetime for me and i still get people i mean to this day on facebook on twitter on uh, emails through the mail. I get fans saying how much they appreciated what we had done and how much they had fun at the first celebration and how they loved the Star Wars Insider magazine. Thank you for starting it. And, you know, you walk around Star Wars celebration and people still recognize me and know who I am and know that what I had done in the past. And, uh, and it's just fun to see Star Wars continuing on and growing and to know that, you know, we played a part in all of that to help keep the whole phenomenon still growing and, and being successful. So, uh, yeah, you know, we had a little, we're just a little footnote in the history of Star Wars, but nevertheless, we're still there as a footnote. What would you whisper to your kind of 15 year old self to make sure to appreciate as, as um, you go through the process? Yeah. Yeah. That's an awesome, an awesome question. I would say never let anybody tell you, you can't do it. Part of it was, uh, I had this kind of youthful innocence and naivety I thought, you know, well, sure, I can do that. Can you, we want you to put on this event. Sure, I can do that. You know, we want you to publish a magazine that's going to be sold across the world. Sure, I can do that. You know, I mean, as as a as a mature adult today, I, you know, I make, I'm like, geez, how am I going to do that? You know, how I'm going to have to figure this thing out. At that time, I just threw myself into it. You know, I just said, yep, I can do it. I can do it. Not a problem. And I figured a way to do it, you know. Some of the times I fell down and scraped my knees, but got back up again and figured out how to do it a different way and uh, asked for help from others and asked for advice from others. The key was really choosing wisely to put good people around me that had experience and education and things that I necessarily didn't have and uh, could give me good advice as to how to go forward. It was just at the right time and the right place. So great. I feel yep. like there's a common theme of you're really bringing a diverse group of fans to celebrate something you really love. You know, that's it, just so important to happen. And even amidst all of these things, you need to acknowledge what's happening in the world and also, you know, create the space to celebrate. And that's what you did. Sharing, you know, this community is very important. And that's why these celebrations are so important to them. It's they get together every two years and they can just forget about everything that's going on in the world and just celebrate this thing that they absolutely love as much as anything, and that's Star Wars. And they get together and dress in their costumes and 
buy their collectibles and go to their panels and watch the actors and get the autographs and see the new clips of what's coming down the line. And, you know, there's more Star Wars being made today than ever before. So it's a good time to be a Star Wars fan. Kev, I think we need to go to next year's celebration. We're going to hunt you down, Dan. I'll be there. You guys make sure you let me know in advance and we'll, we'll schedule a time to uh, hook up and then say hi. I want awesome. a Dan, uh, Anthony yeah. Daniels sandwich photo personally. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can arrange that for you. Oh actually. My God. <laughs> I think I can arrange that. <laughs> Dan, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. What an amazing life you've lived. I'm, I'm jealous. It seems so fun. Oh, well, thank um, you. That's, I appreciate that. It's, uh, it's been, it's been fun. And, uh, I have a lot of great memories and um, I'll remember them till the day I die. So it's been a, it's been a fun experience being involved in all the things that I, I grew up being passionate about. Thank you for being so generous with us. It's been so fun talking to you. Yeah. Thanks for your Not time. Not a problem man. guys. Oh, love you, Dan. You are amazing. Great conversation. Thank you, sir. Kevin and I are happier to have had that one hour phone call with you. Yes. <laughs> Um, We are better people. All right. If you want to get involved with the Star Wars celebration next year in Chicago, like Kevin and I do, or think about buying that (laughs) one day pass, you can get all the info that you need and tickets and all of that at StarWarsCelebration.com. No spaces, no hyphens, no underscore thingies, just StarWarsCelebration.com. Yep. And if you want to find out more about us um, and our, more about us, people and company, um, our website is people-and.com um, or say hi. Send us an email at hi at people-and.com. Great. I kind of like that sound. That's, that's the remix. Like, that's the mess up. <laughs> the mess up impulse. Thank you, everybody. All right. See you next time. <laughs>